Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. In the 100 plus multifamily universe, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find value, regardless of market or asset class. There's just too much money chasing too few deals. With smaller buildings, however, there's less competition and way more opportunity for creativity and value-add solutions that generate more attractive returns. Today's guest, Chris Grenzig, owner of JAG Communities in Jacksonville, Florida, is buying smaller buildings with great returns and plans to gradually scale to larger properties. So today we have with us a guy that has rolled his sleeves up, has moved from uh, New York down to Jacksonville, multifamily guy, fellow podcaster, just doing phenomenal things in this environment, making things happen. I want to introduce the owner of JAG Communities, Chris Grenzig. Chris, welcome to Street Smart Success. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You got it. And so you move south, but I'm gathering you're from the Northeast, but I, I don't know. So wh- where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, uh, born and raised Long Island, New York. Lived there my whole life. I went to Hofstra University, which is also on Long Island. I did one year up in Massachusetts right out of school and then moved back because I missed it so much. And then prior to moving down to Florida, I lived in Brooklyn for about two and a half, three years. Got it. What part of Brooklyn? Uh, Bushwick and Williamsburg. Got it. Yeah, man. You know, got the the rents in, in Williamsburg. I, I think now, I don't know if they even contracted with COVID, but I just read somewhere, actually, Wall Street Journal, that rents are going through the roof again mm-hmm. in New York. Yeah. I mean, what happened from my understanding was when COVID hit, a lot of places were either offering higher concessions than normal or they were lowering their rent. And now that people are coming back, they're not being soft about it. They're just bring you right back up to market. So maybe people got a year, year and a half of lower rent if they stayed in, but it's kind of back to where it was, if not higher than where it was just giving, you know, what the hell is going on with inflation in the world. So yeah, I think, you know, maybe people got lucky and got a, a couple bucks off for a year, year and a half, but it's, you know, kind of right back to where it was from my understanding. Well, the, the article, I'll tell you the, the perspective of the article, which I thought was amusing is that it, talked about all these people that had left and, you know, gone to places like, you know, Salt Lake City or other places, you know, the flyover states and, you know, thought that they would pursue that dream of open air and this and that. And after about a year, they're like, F this, I, I got to get back to New York or, or LA or, you know, I got to get back to the city. And so, cause the same thing is happening down in LA. Yeah. I mean, I definitely miss it. You know, I live in a more urban area of Jacksonville, but Jacksonville, Florida compared to New York City is two different horses. So I really enjoyed, you know, being able to walk the different things, walk out your door and you got within a five block radius, several different coffee shops, restaurants, bars, gyms, you know, you name it, you could pretty much walk to it. And I enjoyed that environment. You know, I I definitely wasn't somebody who was probably going to live their entire life in Brooklyn or New York City that I always intended and wanted to eventually, you know, move out to the more suburb life, start a family and all that stuff. But there's a part of me that you know, still misses it now. I totally understand. I moved out of San Francisco many years ago and I've still not recovered and I only live seven miles away. So why did you pick uh, Jacksonville specifically? And, you know, what was the circumstances around that? Yeah. So what happened was 
as COVID was hitting, uh, Toro did a bunch of business and the way I was getting compensated was I would get different commissions when deals were bought and sold. And we just happened to be doing a ton of business. And I was going to be very fortunate that I was going to be coming into a lot of money and a lot of money at one time. So in the past, I would kind of just roll money into deals that Toro was doing. And I kind of was looking around. I was like, I've got a decent opportunity to really roll up some money and, you know, take something down myself on the side. And, you know, as much as I believed and worked in all the deals what Toro was working on, I didn't have final say. And, you know, there was also other investors involved. So it's not like I could just do whatever I wanted if I wanted to do something else. I had a, a lot of freedom and I ran basically the whole Florida region of the portfolio, which was a thousand units. But, you know, final decision was not for me. I wasn't a partner. So I was started talking to uh, my parents about maybe pulling some money together, maybe doing something. And then when COVID happened, I really thought there was a high likelihood that deals were going to struggle. There's going to be really good buying opportunities. So I went to them and said, hey, let's commit some money. Let's try to find a deal, buy it in cash. So we don't have to answer to a bank. You know, maybe we'll buy something 40, 50, 60 cents on the dollar. And coming out of this, we'll be in a great position. And that never really happened. Um, but kept looking really liked the idea and was really set on just having something different. Found this great deal, a 16 unit property in Jacksonville, Florida, um, around the corner from a deal Toro had just bought. So, you know, like I said, I did everything in in Jacksonville. So I had spent a ton of time, energy and research on that property. So I knew a ton about the submarket already and kind of the opportunities. And basically, you know, that was 117. It was like a mini version of that. It was all two bedrooms, almost the exact same floor plan as the other property. So it was just like, kind of stars aligned in a way and decided to put it under contract. And that was in like August, 2020. So right in the middle of COVID and New York was shut down hard. And as I was doing it, just had a lot of people, you know, John included, but, um, you know, dozens of people say like, Hey, are you, are you leaving? What are you doing? What does this mean? And was not my intention at all when I was getting started, but people just really put the thought in my head and went through due diligence, went to closing and kind of a few weeks beforehand, it just grew on me. And I was just like, I don't want to be 80 and look back and regret not giving it a shot. So I said, screw it, let's try it. And I wanted to take on the the day-to-day management because I had always said it was a gap in my knowledge, understanding the day-to-day operations, uh, learning the construction side of the business. And I just felt like it was the right time, a really good challenge and, you know, was really an exciting prospect to go down and, and try it. And, you know, for me, it was kind of also really nice too, because even though I have a quote unquote track record in some deals I've done outside of Toro and then my time spent at Toro, I'd never done property management. I'd never managed renovations or construction. And this was not an easy deal by any means. We're spending about 30 to $33,000 a unit on, uh, internal and external renovations for the property. You know, I knew this would be a nice little way to build up a track record and gain some experience and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and kind of figure it out. So decided to move down uh, Thanksgiving of 2020, Thanksgiving weekend. And I've been here ever since. Uh, and we have bought our, we bought our second property in February. We're under contract on our third and fourth property right now. Um, so we'll be up to 60 existing units when we close. And then our fourth deal is actually a 20-unit development deal. 
Got it. You know what? Um, I guess for the listener's sake, and this is on me, this is my bad that I didn't sequence this properly with you. You and I spoke before we hit record about Toro, and we were talking about the fact that I had interviewed John Cohn of Toro before we spoke, but but I didn't create context yes, for it, it for it. So yeah, I appreciate it. So I'm going to ask now, if you don't mind going backwards in your story and in, in, in how you got involved in real estate in Toro and, and you know, what you learned from that and, and maybe that experience. Sure. So I graduated college in 2014. I played division one soccer and I was fortunate enough. Well, unfortunate enough that I didn't prepare for a job out of school, uh, but fortunate enough that I had a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends, um, refer me for an assistant coaching job at Massachusetts. Uh, for a division two soccer program. And I had done a bunch of coaching on the youth side and really enjoyed the sport. And I still do to this day. And I said, let's give it a try. I think it it could be nice. So got the job, went up there for a year, uh, did that, but really missed home and was fortunate enough to get a job working for uh, a school called Queens College, was able to move back. But I wasn't hundred percent sure college coaching was going to be the route for me. It's uh, a ton of time. Uh, My job was part-time it paid me about $5,000 a year. So I was basically a glorified youth coach, which in and of itself is not a problem, but youth coaching is sometimes more babysitting than it is coaching, depending upon how old they are. And I, knowing that I wanted to be in New York, knew that my chance to scale up and move up in the world of college coaching or coaching in general, because if you get good enough, you go professional. It would be very tough if I limited myself to a small geographic region. You know, if you want to move up, you got to be willing to move wherever the job is, whenever the job becomes available. And that could be the West Coast. That could be the middle of Louisiana. You don't really know. So uh, I just thought that I would be really setting myself up for a tough road if that's what the route I wanted to go. Um, Little did I know several years later, I would move out of New York anyway, but be that as it may, that was my thought process at the time. So got my first real job, which was a cold caller for a stock brokerage firm on Long Island. Uh, Did that for several months, got licensed. So I have my series seven and 63, uh, but right around the time I got licensed, I was becoming really disillusioned with the business. I think it's the business in general, but I can only speak to the specific company I worked for. Uh, but the culture was very much what commission can my clients make me and not, am I actually going to make the clients any money or not, which is ass backwards in the world of investing, in my opinion, relatively quickly, I knew I wanted to get out. However, I was living on my own and had bills. So I needed something else. And I was fortunate enough that my mom and cousin bought a single family flipping course through fortune builders. And they invited me along because, you know, talking to my mom and telling her I need to find something else. And that was my literal, I knew nothing about real estate before that. I didn't know how to buy a house. I had rented one house. That was it. You know, I didn't know anything. Uh, the example I like to give is I thought asbestos was a type of mold when I got started. <laughs> and I learned very quickly that that is not what asbestos is. So started from zero. We started to try and flip in on nights and weekends and did that for few months, several months and completely failed. Never bought a house, never flipped a house, never even had one under contract. Um, and as we started learning more, we were doing it wrong um, for sure. Uh, but one of our problems that we had kind of gotten sold on that, you know, we were a little sour on was you were supposed to get this coach in your area through the program. And there wasn't a coach near us for hundreds of miles. I think the closest one and the one we got assigned to is in Maryland. 
So there was really a disconnect between, you know, the cost and process between how it works in Maryland and a place like Long Island and New York, where, you know, you've got much stricter landlord laws, uh, real estate laws, higher holding costs, higher labor costs, et cetera. Um, however, it fully on us, we could have taken those systems and plans and implemented them better. Uh, we just didn't. But as we kind of looked at it, we decided to pivot. So we looked at flipping out of state uh, and then we actually met John Cohen and he was going to show us how to buy tax deeds down in Philadelphia. So my cousin and I drove down one weekend, went to a bunch of these properties and they were, we cut out some of the worst neighborhoods and these were still super, super rough. So we were like, no thanks, that's not going to work. But he was doing a small multifamily and he had just started Toro with his partner, Don Dorenzo, which was focused on larger multifamily. So hundred to 500 units. And we talked to him and we partnered on a few smaller deals. Uh, and then small world, John had worked for the same people I was working for at the stock brokerage company five, six years ago. And he had gotten out, gone into real estate full time. And I was just talking to him about it, telling him I wanted to leave and do this. Uh, and he was like, Hey, Don and I are, I mean, we have three deals under contract. We're thinking about bringing in somebody to help. You know, would you want to try it? Come over on like a trial basis and see if it works. I said, sure. Better than what I'm doing now. And um, you know, it wasn't a ton of money. It was definitely a pay cut at the time, but I was just very unhappy with work in my life at the time. So I said, let's do it. And I think it was like a three month trial and, you know, three months turned into four and a half years. And that trial also turned into me heading up the Florida division, which, you know, ended up being a thousand units, seven properties. Uh, I think we acquired them for like 60 or 70 million. And I mean, you know, those things are worth well over 10, a hundred million now, um, for the ones they still have. So, wow, man, are you serious? <laughs> that's 60 to 70 mil now worth over a hundred mil. That is, that's amazing. If you said you were in charge of that portfolio, but then you also said earlier that you don't have the day-to-day experience, the property management renovation, but yet you were in charge of a thousand units. Did you basically have third-party property management then and you were just basically managing the assets at that level? Correct. Yeah. We outsourced uh, property management to a third-party company. You know, I did basically the, the acquisitions and the asset management for Florida and just communicated basically daily, but at least weekly with the property management company, the different people there and overseeing it. And I'd probably come down to Florida probably on average every two to three months. But, you know, sometimes it would be twice a month within a few weeks of each other, just depending upon what was going on. And sometimes it would be several months if there wasn't really a big need to come down at that time. In what markets were those properties concentrated on? Well, I, I ask it like they were concentrated, but were they all over? Or where, where were they? No. So they, uh, despite our best efforts, they all ended up being in Jacksonville. Um, our first deal was there and, you know, we would continually reach out to different brokers in Orlando, Tampa, Pensacola, and look at deals and underwrite them. And then what would always end up happening somewhat to the broker's dismay was we would end up coming across a deal in Jacksonville or another market in the Midwest, which is the other area we were focused on. And, you know, we had so much bandwidth for deals and, you know, we would say, why would we do a deal in a new market with less knowledge and data? than in a market we already know and have success in and have a team built up and everything. So uh, a lot of times we would be looking at a deal or thinking about offering on deals, and then we'd have another opportunity that would come up and it just made more sense. So, you know, despite looking in other markets, it only ever ended up being in Jacksonville, which is, you know, why I ended up looking for a personal deal there because I had so much market knowledge. And, you know, I think that knowledge removes a lot of risk. And funny enough, I spent the first probably two weeks 
of my journey for finding a deal looking at Indianapolis. And then I kind of turned around and said, what am I doing? I know so much less about Indianapolis. Even if I think I have the opportunity to make more money here, my lack of knowledge is adding more risk to the deal. So when you look at the actual risk reward between the two, you know, the, the quote unquote return, if you were to take away return points for how much risk it has, um, net between the, the risk being taken off the reward, Jacksonville would actually be better. So after two weeks, I, I changed it to going and looking at Jacksonville. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So, you know, you were saying that you guys were looking at stuff in Orlando or other markets and you just always wound up doing deals in Jacksonville because you had the market knowledge, the data, and therefore less risk because more, more knowledge equals less risk. What was pricing part of that? Were cap rates a little bit higher in Jacksonville or was it strictly just this is our comfort zone? Yeah. So just to clarify, Toro's bought deals in, you know, started in the Carolinas, then found it tough to find deals there. We bought a deal in uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, um, but kind of like the last two, two and a half years I was there, we changed and we only focused on a couple cities in Florida and a couple cities in the Midwest. And what happened was because we already had deals in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and John knew a ton about the market because that's the first deal he ever bought was back in 2014 in Columbus. So he had a lot of experience there and knew a lot about the market already. And then a similar story with Jacksonville, except starting in 2017, you know, anytime deals would come up in some other areas in those other markets in the Midwest and, and Florida, we would just find deals kind of in those markets over the last, you know, two, two and a half years before I left. So we did have experience in other areas. Um, but yeah, I would say Jacksonville compared to Orlando and Tampa cap rates are always a little bit better. Now, I mean, they're almost identical, just the way the the world has gone and the way capital is going. But, you know, I think if anybody said, if you could have an identical deal in Tampa and Jacksonville, you would choose Tampa because Tampa is the bigger market. Uh, it has, you know, some more stuff going for it. You know, you also have more buyers in that area. So I'm not naive to to say that Jacksonville is more desirable from a macro investor standpoint than Tampa. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, multiple reasons. We just always found opportunities that made more sense for us in Jacksonville versus some of those other Florida markets. Well, here's another thing that's kind of interesting to me is that you move down there after getting into, if I, if I followed the trajectory uh, and if I remember it from like 10 minutes ago, is that you move down there after getting into contract on 16 units that's super interesting. And was that just because, hey, I need to get my feet on the ground to run this deal? Or was it that and you knew that you were going to expand specifically in Jacksonville? So originally, like I said, originally I was buying it just to have on the side and I had a different property management company I was going to use to manage it. While we went under contract, prior to closing, I made the decision that I was going to leave Toro and go off on my own. And coinciding in that division was moving down to take on the property management, construction management, and 
build a vertically integrated company. And there was multiple reasons for that. One being I am, I, I think finding good property managers for smaller properties is very difficult. And I think the biggest reason for that is if somebody's trying to build a company and they're good at what they do, by law of the market, they're going to move up into bigger and better projects, right? Whether it's a construction company, property management company, investment company, landscaping company, you're probably going to start small. And then as you get good, you're going to get referrals or more business. And then you're going to take on bigger and bigger projects. And then eventually the small projects are not going to make sense anymore. So for me, when you find property management companies that do smaller properties, there is probably a reason for that. And it could be many, many reasons, some valid, some invalid. Um, so I'm not trying to say all small property management companies are not good, um, but I think it's just tougher to find good property management companies um, for smaller stuff than it is larger stuff. I think you buy 150 unit property, you've got several, if not dozens of potential, at least good property management companies. Maybe they're not the best, maybe they're not great, but you have good ones. I don't think you have nearly that same capability to find that many good property managers, if any, to be perfectly honest, in that space. So one, buying it, I was always nervous that this person I was going to use, I knew of a couple possible backups, but I was always worried that they were going to move up and then they weren't going to want to manage my deal anymore. And then I would have to do it Uh, as well too. I wanted to go down and do the hands-on day-to-day stuff so I could learn Even if I didn't like it and I decided in two years I didn't want a vertically integrated company, I felt it would just make me a better acquisitions asset manager sponsor on the syndication side, that it wasn't actually going to hurt me. Um, And then three, I do think vertical integration gives a better, higher potential for operations on the property than if you outsource it. Not saying that a vertically integrated property management company is always going to be better However, I do think the potential for that management of those properties is higher when it is vertically integrated. You just have one clear path, one set of values, uh, one team, one way of doing business. You don't have to work with somebody else when they have their own systems, values, people, uh, way of doing business that you've got to accommodate. Um, you know, No matter how closely aligned you and another company are, you're not as closely aligned as one single company, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I get it. I, I've heard in certain institutions when they're going to invest equity, they actually insist on vertical integration. A lot do. When we at Toro, we started talking to some more you know, sophisticated institutional investors, and I would say at least 50%, their first question would be, are you vertically integrated? And if you weren't, they would say, come back to us when you are. Now, I've heard arguments for both sides. You know, When you're vertically integrated, if your property manager is not doing well, you can't really fire yourself. I mean, you, I guess you technically could, but that wouldn't look good. So there is something to be said for also having a third party company, because if they're not doing what you need them to do for one reason or another, you can just fire them and go find somebody else that hopefully does a better job. However, I would just back myself to figure it out and, you know, put a team together that does well. But yes, a lot of institutional investors will not invest in a deal or a fund unless the operator and the sponsor is vertically integrated. I, I like vertical integration just because at 50,000 feet anyway, you know, assuming you've got the right people hired, right? Of course, you know, there's always that, but it really is pure alignment around cost, right? So, I mean, you know, you're keeping your costs in line. Theoretically, you've got more rigor around unit turn where, you know, every day is costing you money. 
it just seems like it's economically, it just seems to make more sense to me. So in terms of what you've done, which is absolutely fantastic, by the way, you know, you moved way south and you really kind of said, hey, I'm going to do this. And, you know, the courage of your convictions, which I, I, I think is absolutely fantastic. And also congratulations on the acquisitions this year. Thank you. You're welcome. And so I guess it seems like you're starting out relatively small. And I say relatively because mm-hmm. you're, you're not doing single family houses. I mean, you're liter- legitimately doing serious multifamily. Are you planning on scaling up? And because a lot of times I hear people say, just go big now and just start with, you know, 150, 200 units. It, it's no more work and it's even less work because you've got people on site you know, you have on-site management and it because of the scale, it's actually more efficient. How do you respond to that? I find it's super interesting what you're doing. Yeah, they're not wrong. If I wanted to maximize my dollars and time right now, I would not be doing property management. My ROI on time spent the past year is atrocious, but I'm looking at it from a 10-year standpoint. So I have a 10-year plan broken out by year uh, to get to 500 million under management. Uh, that includes acquiring about 600-ish million dollars over 10 years, um, having about 540 still under management. So selling off about 60 million of that with a little bit of cushion um, because I'm not going to hold every deal 10 years. And like my last year is acquiring $200 million worth of properties. You know, my deals that I've bought so far are anywhere between uh, 1.17 and 2.35 million. I'm not buying a hundred, $2 million properties in 10 years. I'll tell you that right now. That would just be crazy. So yeah, it kind of, you know, to get to that scale, it necessitates moving up. One is I was already under contract on the deal before I decided to do this. So kind of already, you know, I put the cart in front of the horse a little bit in that regard. Um, but two, for me, it was, you know, again, getting in the weeds. Like right now I have a, a manager and a maintenance supervisor that work for me. They work for my company and, and operate my deals for me. But, you know, the first four months, you know, I was doing everything myself. You know, I was a, a one-man team. I was turning units, talking to residents, signing leases, marketing units, doing renovations, talking to vendors. I mean, I, I did everything that your 200-unit property managers and to a certain degree maintenance people were doing. I wasn't the one actually, you know, turning the screws and fixing the leaks, but I was the one that was getting called out there to go look at it. So for me, I said, let's, I, I don't want to do that. It's a fifteen hour, a fifteen dollar, twenty dollar an hour job, and I think my time is more valuable than that. But I'm going to sacrifice now for that knowledge and understanding, and that ability to also connect with the people that are going to work with me in the future. And I also think that story, you know, gives me a little respect because, you know, let's call a spade a spade. There's probably going to be a lot of people that work for, you know, CEOs of companies like Toro. And the maintenance people like, those guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. Excuse my language. Um, (laughs) You know, I I don't know if you allow it or not. I should have asked beforehand. But, um, you know, they look at this guy sitting up in New York and say, you know, he's so disconnected. And they're not wrong, right? I was disconnected 100%. But now, you know, I'm here. You know, I don't have the same experience. I won't be doing the same job at that time. But there is some, I think, relation there. And I think it earns me at least a little bit of respect from people in the future, hopefully that like, hey, you know, this, you know, this guy, you know, did what he needed to do and, you know, got dirty and then built it from there. And yeah, again, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I was the one, 
fixing toilets and the one fixing drywall or doing different things. But, you know, I think it at least gave me a a better level of understanding and it's only going to help me create a better foundation for the future. I also do think because of the the problems with property management and also the, the dollars in some of these smaller deals that I have a little bit of a competitive advantage over a lot of other people that are looking to buy deals that I'm buying. So for the interim, I feel like I have a better potential to find better returning deals or create better opportunities because these smaller deals, you can be more creative with them and do different things than going out and buying 150 unit property. And, you know, I'm looking at what some of these deals are selling for and I'm scratching my head a little bit, you know, on on the larger stuff, because I do still try to stay connected to the market and what's going on. You know, I just think I'm getting better deals, better yields, and, you know, I'm going to be better off for it and be able to operate them in a more professional manner and also look at deals with a more sophisticated lens where instead of 150 people down, you know, anywhere in the country and even the world downloading a, you know, an OM for a deal in Jacksonville, Florida. I mean, it could be 400 people who the hell knows, you know, I'm competing against a handful of guys and some of them are, you know, doctors that are just looking for turnkey properties or, you know, they're other real estate guys, but you know, those guys only have so much bandwidth and, you know, I've got a different experience than a lot of them as well. So I think it just gives me a competitive advantage. And when I sat down and built out my 10 year plan to get to 500 million under management, yeah, year 10 is acquiring 200 million, but my first year is acquiring 5 million, which with this, this third deal will hit that mark and surpass it. I'll close a little late, a little past the year, but I'll be over the mark. Uh, that next deal, the development deal, um, if it's 20 units, it'll be about three and a half to 4 million all in. Uh, we're hoping to try to double that and get a variance. And, you know, I've got a, my, my goal is to hit 8 million acquired in the second year. So I could be, you know, halfway or maybe even all the way done with just one deal, um, you know, and then 12 million. And then you know, I think 18, it's roughly 50% a year over year increase on in all of them, but it allows me the opportunity to play in a space that I think I can find unique and different opportunities in. Well, I mean, this is why I wanted to interview you because I'm fascinated with the notion of doing smaller deals for the exact exact reason that you articulated, because there's so much less gridlock and efficiency, so therefore more opportunity. And and frankly, I'm enamored with what you're describing only because selfishly, you know, what you're describing is what I did in my other business, which is advertising. The only thing is I wasn't as smart uh, or as talented as you. So I worked, did everything for years, not just four months. Uh, But I'll tell you, by the time I found a niche, and that's for another podcast, but by the time I found a niche and started hiring people, I, I knew what I was doing because I had done everybody's job that I had hired for. And so it made me better capable of making the right hires and nobody can uh, end around me or it, it. So I think what you're doing is incredibly admirable. And quite frankly, you know, I'm a limited partner, which is why I do the podcast overall, make contacts, learn as much as I can. The guys I talk to that are doing their first deals in their 200 units and this and that, while on the one hand, it's impressive because they've got the chutzpah to do that and this and that. I also run in the other direction because I'm like, I just don't trust it. And which isn't to say they're not going to be good operators or successful. Um, but I just think in the last five years in particular, compressing cap rates have just risen all boats and it, it, everybody's benefited from it, good and bad operators. So anyway, oh, yeah. I mean, if you if you've invested in a deal in the last three years and it's not going to hit a 20 percent per year, like 
that's not a good deal. Like if, if, unless it's like, unless it's like a crazy low lever deal or, you know, for some other reason, if your deal hasn't outperformed the pro forma, then there's something wrong there. That was not, even though you made 17% a year, that was not a good deal in comparison to the market. Assuming, you know, because everybody is doing deals and, you know, your Rust Belt and your West Coast where everybody's moving with good reason. It's definitely been a a rising tide for sure between rent growth and cap rate compression and, you know, various different things. Everybody's going to look pretty golden right now. Like I, I say, you know, the second deal that we did 24 unit property, if I go on a podcast in three years and you get that typical question, that's like, oh, tell me about your best deal. I know everybody listening to that. I don't want to do that episode, but I'm saying in theory, if I do, it's going to sound fake. Like just, we bought it right. Rents, instead of being 1,025, like we underwrote them, are going to be 1,250 or 1,300. I mean, it's just stupid. Like it, it literally is just stupid. So, you know, if if those stories don't come out from somebody you invested in in the past one to three years, or, you know, you're not significantly over what they pro forma'd, Either they were super aggressive on their pro forma and they hit their mark and you got lucky or, you know, the deal didn't do what it was supposed to do. And you got to figure out why not to knock people. But I mean, uh, it's just ridiculous what's been happening the last 12 to 18 months. That's exactly right. So on, on these deals that you've been doing, Chris, what is the typical raise been then? And how are you how are you raising the money? Is it friends and family at this point? Yeah. So the first two deals I did, uh, I did not raise any money from investors. It was a good chunk of my own capital. And then um, with very close family, and I just don't like to say who it is because that's private. But because the first deal, one just wasn't, again, it it was not a planned syndication or anything like that. So it never was going to do that. Uh, And the second one was very quick. Honestly, it came quicker than I was probably ready for, um, but it was just too good to pass up. Uh, so I, I knew, I knew even if I messed up the entire first year, it was going to make sense over the five, seven years we were going to own it. Um, and I didn't mess it up. So that's good. It's only now this third deal that I'm starting to raise money for. So it's, uh, about 2.9 million all in, we're getting a 75% bridge loan because rents are so under market. We're taking them from like 740 to 1140 and they need a decent bit of work. Um, so I'm raising about 750 grand just from People I know, 506B, so this is not me, you know, saying, hey, come invest in this deal. Um, you know, friends, family, close people I've known, a lot of people that are in the real estate space as well. You know, just people I know, if they invest, they know what's going on so that if I mess up or I'm wrong, they're like, okay, that's real estate and, you know, stuff happens. Not that I want that to happen, but, you know, I'm not really raising money right now from somebody that's newer or that just filled out my form and then clicked on a link and watched a webinar and wants to invest 50 grand. You know, I'm really just raising it from a tight knit and just slowly having people, you know, reach out, interested in investing and having those conversations now so that, you know, kind of next year as I start really start ramping up more of the marketing and capital raising and stuff like that, you know, there is some opportunities for other people. So, you know, these first three deals are very close family and then, you know, family and friends that are pretty close and that I've known for a while. Got it. And what is your criterion for a deal? So, you know, what, what screams out is I'm going to buy this. And it's funny, I I was about to say something, but we spoke about it beforehand. Um, I know, uh, John, you said, said something very similar, but, um, you know, just, I, I really care about the story and the background of like, what is going on? What's the opportunity? I'm super big on, you know, why should I be buying this deal? Like, why is this right for me? What's, what's my competitive advantage? why isn't somebody else buying this is a huge question I always ask. Like, why isn't, you know, like 
This third deal I'm buying right now is in a, a different submarket than I currently own. It's actually a submarket I personally live in. It's a really good area. Um, so that was something I was a little like afraid of. Like, why isn't somebody else that I know, you know, I know people that buy in this area. Why aren't they aren't buying this? And I kind of did some digging and found out they just flat, flat out didn't know about it, which was kind of interesting. Um, you know, so like, that's just a big thing I'm really curious about. Like, why me? Why not somebody else? And then I start looking at some of the financial stuff. I don't really give two craps about what the cap rate is. Cap rates are the most objective overhyped thing, in my opinion. I do care about my pro forma cap though. You know, what, what is my income? How am I going to operate the property? Because especially in these smaller spaces with different abilities to, to operate, you know, sometimes the owner is the day-to-day landlord. Um, sometimes it's like, I looked at one deal where it's a husband and a wife and, you know, the husband was the maintenance guy. So they had no repairs and maintenance because he did everything. So it's like, okay, well, their expenses are ridiculous. It was like 10% of income which was crazy. They actually had one tenant uh, that would pay them in fish, which was pretty crazy. Um, he no. worked on a sh- uh, in shrimp, actually. He worked on a shrimp boat and he would get like these crazy big shrimp. So he would give them like a bag every two weeks and they just let them pay whatever kind of thing. And I was like, I've never seen that before. So like, it's like, you know, you start working on these smaller things and it's like, you know, you go buy a, a 200 unit property that's marketed by, you know, CBRE or Cushman or something. You're not finding a tenant that pays in shrimp. So, you know, sometimes you find these pretty interesting scenarios, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about the backstory, the opportunity. Um, I'm super big on what has the the previous owner and owners uh, done to the property. Like, have they been replacing things or fixing things? What have they replaced? How did they replace it? You know, as I'm learning more about construction, I'm now getting more cautious on like, just because they replaced it doesn't mean the quality of work was very high because just even some of the guys that, or people, excuse me, that come out to do some of the work for our properties, I shake my head at, you know, why they did it the way they did. And then I've got to make them redo it. So, um, you know, not just that it was replaced. How does, how does the work look? What was the quality of work? Was it done by somebody I know? Um, which is sometimes nice, not very often. And then I just want to know, you know, what the opportunity is. Why do I want to be in this location for years? Do I think it's a location that's going to do well? I mean, right now in Florida, you throw a, a dart at the whole state. You kind of pick an area you want to be in for the next five years, which is kind of nice. It's not really a, a massive question, but you know, when you're picking from a whole market, you obviously want to be in certain areas over others. Um, yeah, I mean, those are the big things. You know, just really, why should I buy it? What's the opportunity? You know, what's the what's the downside? Like, what's my break-even occupancy? What's my break-even cap rate? Which is the same as your pro forma cap rate. So if I can operate my NOI divided by my, my total cost of acquisition at a, a six and a half and stuff selling for a five, you know, I know cap rates can move 150 basis points and I'll break even. If I've got to bring the deal to the studs and redo it, uh, what would my total cost be? And how does that compare against my, my exit value in the future? Being close to break even is really nice because good chance I walk into a deal and I'm not going to miss that it needs all new roof siding, windows, ACs, water heaters, plumbing replaced, electrical replaced, new drywall, you know, all that stuff that's going to cost you 50 to 75K a unit, depending upon, you know, the size and scope of stuff. But if I can buy a deal and plug in 50K a door and I'm breaking even on my exit, that makes me feel pretty good. You know, so those are kind of things I'm all looking at. Do you have a predilection or a, that's the wrong word, a preference for class? Obviously it needs to have some upside in bedroom mix or? I'm not super, uh, I'm not super big on bedroom mix. So like the deal I'm buying right now is studios and ones. I'm not crazy about studios. Uh, however, that being said, it's like in a really good area. Like I said, I live 
very close to it personally. And it's when I was moving, one of the reasons I really like it when I was moving down, you know, I spent a lot of time looking up, where am I going to live? Um, and what is an area I want to live in? Uh, and this area is called Riverside and it was basically Riverside. And then, you know, the beaches were kind of the top two that were always recommended to live in. So that makes me feel really comfortable that, you know, maybe a single person moving down that doesn't want to spend an arm and a leg or can't afford it. You know, a studio is a really good option. There's also not a lot of studios in the market uh, and they tend to rent pretty quick from what I've seen over the past few weeks and month as we've had it under contract. And they've also all got washer dryers in them, which I think is really underrated. So uh, for that area, I think it works really well. Where my other properties are, I wouldn't be as excited about studios because it's more family focused. It's got good schools. So it, it, I think it depends on location and what's going on. And again, it's all for what price at the end of the day, right? I think if I came to you and said, hey, I'll offer you a 20 unit studio property for a dollar, I think anybody would take it. You know, it's worth something. It's just at what price. But I'm definitely uh, more picky on location. So I'm really not looking for C-class stuff, uh, at least now. And just selfishly, I don't really want to manage in those areas. Don't really want to deal with a lot of the problems you get with that tenant base, crime, bad debt, you know, different things you get. I mean, a lot of people, most people, I'd say the vast majority uh, who live in workforce housing, classic stuff are just good people trying to get by. But you do get a lot more uh, different problems, different headaches, undesirable people that come onto the property. And that's just not what I want to do in the day to day. Um, I also personally think... Uh, you get a better risk reward in kind of your B class stuff than your C class stuff. It's got very similar, especially through COVID from what I saw, uh, you had very similar collections rate, bad debt rates as you did uh, for the B and A stuff. And you had a lot worse in kind of your C class stuff. Um, so, you know, your B and A stuff did just as well and didn't get hit too hard. C got hit a little bit harder from what I saw, at least in Jacksonville. I, I don't, I don't and didn't focus as much on other markets. So I can't speak for everything. Um, so I think, you know, just the combination of the two that I think it's got a little bit better downside protection and it's just easier to manage from a, a tenant standpoint. It's kind of why I'm focused on the the B stuff and better. I mean, really, you know, B minus to A minus, I'm not really going to be buying, you know, there's no 50 unit A class stuff, which is why I'm trying to actually build 20 unit stuff because I think there's actually a niche for that. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm focused on in terms of like asset class and location class. Got it. Going from, so you worked four years for Toro, the company that John, John Cohen started, which we talked about. And then, you know, you did well, but you're like, Hey, it's not my own company. It's not my own thing. And, and I want to do my own thing. I guess what were the key takeaways, key things that you learned through that experience and, and what are you and what do you want to do differently? You know, I think the vertical integration is one. We had always talked about doing it. It's tough to become vertically integrated after the fact. Um, you know, you've really got to bring on somebody that is a partner or, you know, highly paid person that knows how to run property management and oversee it. And it wasn't something John, Don, or myself were really equipped to take over running the property management arm. You've also got to have enough scale to, uh, to really do it when you're at that level, unless you're local and you're building it up from day one. And even now, I mean, I'm basically losing money on the property management stuff right now, but it's about, again, that 10, 15, 20 year vision. Another thing, and this isn't necessarily a Toro thing, it's it's kind of just the way that the business runs to a certain degree. I am not the biggest fan of preferred returns. I think they're great from the standpoint of, from the LP side, the sponsor and the GP not getting compensated until you hit a certain return. And I think that's great and helps incentivize the general partner and the sponsor to perform. I think it's great from that standpoint. 
However, I think we've now started basically flipping multifamily. And I don't think that's what this business is supposed to be. You know, I'm not getting into real estate to be a glorified flipper. I'm getting into this business to be an owner. So for me, one of the things that Toro and a lot of other people do will get into a deal, renovate a handful of units, and then, you know, sell within a couple of years um, as another value add deal. And the real reason for that is because your 90% of your compensation as the general partner is on the back end when you sell. You know, deals, you know, an 8% preferred return may have worked in the past if deals sold for six, seven, eight caps and you're borrowing at five and you could cash flow over 8%, but that's not the world we live in anymore. Um, so for me, what I'm really trying to find is deals that I can add a ton of value quickly and then do a refinance, which then allows me after basically two years to then participate in the cash flow, at least in a small way as the sponsor. Um, and it helps me financially be incentivized to hold a deal longer. It's still 80% of the compensation is on the back end, but I really want to own assets. I, you know, we basically would renovate this deal and then sell out of it. And it's like, you just did all this hard work. Like why not enjoy it for a little bit? You know, the, the whole point of doing value adds is to create this asset that cash flows above what a stabilized deal would sell for, right? If you're buying a, a stabilized deal at a, let's say a hypothetical, I mean, in today's world, five and a half cap, right? I don't even know what a stabilized deal would sell for. You know, if you're like, hey, I want a turnkey product. I don't want to do anything. I just want to cash flow and it's five and a half. Well, you're buying at a four and a half because in two, three years, your pro forma cap can be above that six, seven, whatever it is. You do all this work to create this asset that now generates a higher yield than what you could buy on the market. And then we turn around and we sell it. And it's like, you just become more transactional. And I understand it. I know why people do it because, you know, like these deals, if we were to do that, you know, instead of me sitting on a deal and getting paid, let's say 300 grand in seven years, you know, I could turn around, flip it and make 175, 200 within, you know, 18 months, 24 months. You know, so it, it's not really incentivized to hold for long term. So I'm, I'm trying to work to figure out a, a system that kind of satisfies all the needs. And I'm really open to any ideas if anybody's got them on how to best balance between, you know, the incentivized to perform, but also spread out the compensation a little bit more so that it's not so, so back end driven. Um, but, you know, another big thing is I want to own these deals for years because there's so many deals we've sold that are worth you know, maybe even double now than what we paid for him, you know, only 18, 24 months ago, you know, and everybody talks about time in the market when you talk about the stock market, but you never really hear people talk about that in the syndication world or in this, you know, multifamily space, um, unless you are a buy and hold, you know, burr investor doing single family. So it's like, you know, it's just this weird dichotomy. And I would prefer to be, you know, an owner for five to 10 years. I mean, you don't, you know, you can't really hold deals indefinitely when you raise capital from people. Um, I think, that is not attractive to a lot of investors, but I think, you know, having that refi, having some sort of capital come back, some sort of liquid event within a couple of years bridges that gap. And then also, you know, you have people that want to own it for the longer term. Wow. That is a, a refreshing, interesting perspective and have yet to hear it. And, um, I get it. I get it loud and clear. It's, it's appealing to me as an investor, quite frankly, for everything that you kind of out, outlined there. So, Tell my listeners how they would uh, get a hold of you if, if you were so inclined to actually want them to. Sure. I mean, definitely reach out. 
easiest ways are if you want to follow along social media on a lot of platforms, the two main ones are Instagram at chris.grenzig or on LinkedIn, just search Chris Grenzig. Uh, if you want to get directly in touch with me, you can email me. It's chris at jag-communities.com. So at J-A-G hyphen communities.com. Uh, that's also one of our websites, uh, jag-communities.com. I made it. I built it myself and never finished it, and it's going through a revamp right now. So depending upon when this comes out, it may look like crap or it may look good. If it looks like crap, bear with me. It's just honestly not a priority at the moment. I'm focused on a few other things and have somebody working on it right now. So hopefully by the time this comes out, it'll look nice. And then uh, I'll also have a second website. Don't know exactly what it'll be, um, but the kind of the investor side will be, uh, it's going to be Jag Capital Partners. I don't know what the URL will be, but, um, you know, if you email me, I'll send you that way. And on one or both of the websites, there'll be an investor questionnaire. If you're curious or want to know more about, you know, investing alongside some of the deals we're doing in the future, just, you know, fill it out and I'll get in touch with you or just, you know, shoot me an email or a DM and, you know, we can set it up that way too. My last question is, what is Jag? What is J-A-G? Uh, so that stands for John August Grenzig and Son. So that was my my great great grandfather uh, started an electrical contracting business in Brooklyn back in 1930. Uh, they moved to this company in 1909. Uh, he started it, owned it. His son worked there, then owned it. His son, my grandfather, worked there and owned it. Uh, and my dad worked there, never owned it. He started his own company, which he called Chinesco Products, and sold when we were younger. And I just know I wouldn't be where I am today without you know my dad, as well as my mom, who also, um, you know, had an incredible career herself, you know, I wouldn't be able to be doing what I'm doing. So it's just kind of paying homage to them. Where did your great grandfather move from in 1909? Uh, Germany. They moved from somewhere up North. I forget exactly where it is. My grandma, we call her Oma. Um, she's also from Germany. Um, so my, I'm still on my dad's side. She's from Germany. She's from Essen, um, which is on, on the West side near Dortmund. Um, I forget exactly where they were from though. I've got to go back and refresh my memory. Got it. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. I'm a big fan of what you're doing, man. You're putting one foot in front of the other. Very, very thoughtful, methodical, and uh, somewhat contrarian, which I absolutely love. And uh, it's going to bear fruit for you. It already is, but it's going to continue in, in a major way. And if I were to guess 10 years from now, you'll, you'll have closer to a billion under management than 500 million. Here's to hoping that's true. <laughs> All right, Chris, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you soon.